Hey, Redemption Church, that's a weird thing to have on stage. All right, so it is such a good, good day. It is a good day because, first of all, today is Communion Sunday. That makes it a good day. Second of all, today is a Baptism Sunday. So two sacraments, one Sunday. That makes it epic. Another thing is this week we sent out an announcement about our building. Did you get the announcement about the building? Yeah! Right on. So April is not getting built today, but in April it gets underway. And on April 16th, don't forget, that's going to be kind of this consecration, uh, thankful Sunday. We're going to meet on the, the property at the Hub after the service up here on that 16th of April, and it's just going to be a time of reflection, thankfulness, prayerfulness, all together as a body of people. So that is also epic. Another reason today is a great Sunday. And then on top of all of that, we are in our current series, Divided We Stand, and the heart of that series is not about how we are to be divided against the world, but rather how in Christ and in His Spirit and through His Gospel, we are to be divided for the sake of the world, to dispense love and flourishing and beauty and light and encouragement as God's gospel intends. And so that's what we're looking at in this series. Now I want to remind you really quick, we do have an app. We just learned about that. And in the app, there are notes that you can follow along, fill in blanks and everything else. That would be super rad if you want to use that. Uh, but aside from that, I want to go ahead and pray right now, kind of get us settled, get us underway for what God has us to kind of learn and wrestle with today. And so if you would join me, that would be fantastic. Let's go ahead and do it together. Jesus, I, I thank you uh, for the fact that you are a good God who is patient with us. I thank you for the fact that you are a good God who doesn't give us what we earn or deserve, but you go out of your way and you dispense what we don't earn and don't deserve, your mercy, your grace, and your love. And so we reflect on that today. We remember that today. We're going to see the echoes and the impact of that today as we look in your word. And so may we hear this and own this, and then from that, live out what you have for us because we're your ambassadors. So guide us and help us, be patient with us, but also stimulate us and inspire us to greatness in you. We thank you, Jesus, and we praise you in your good and perfect name. Amen. All right, so uh, toward the tail end of the first century A.D., there was a dude, his name was John. He ran with Jesus a lot. Jesus said it was his most beloved follower of this group of 12 guys. And at some point toward the end of his life, he was compelled to write a blog, right? And that blog, in essence, was written not on a computer and a screen, but it was written with a quill and parchment. And that whole thing was to reveal to us his heart as it related to his life that he had lived with Jesus and how Jesus had massively impacted him. And so he wrote several things and they all went super viral. And that's why they're in our Bible, right? And at the core of his message was this person that didn't just change his life, but changed everyone's life, that changed the very essence of the world as we know it. And so he's celebrating this person. He's driven by this person. He loves and is in love with, and his love is then propelled by this person named Jesus. And so he writes these works to celebrate who Jesus is and what Jesus calls us to do. Now, in his great opus, The Gospel of John, if we were to see The Gospel of John like a movie, it's like the central movie of a DVD, but then the other letters that he writes, the other works that he writes, those are a bit like those bonus features at the end of a DVD, 
right? Like the director's cut of what's going on and kind of the commentary on everything that matters. And that's what John does. In his gospel, he unpacks all this rich, beautiful stuff about Jesus. And then he writes these three letters to kind of fill in some of the blanks and stimulate people's thinking. And this is decades after Jesus has been on the scene. It's like he's had more reflection, more thought, more encouragement. Now in this, he has an ambition, right? And his ambition is that we would really own what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that we be motivated deep in our core by the things that John is motivated by. So in chapter 1, verse 4, he tells us part of his ambition. He says, man, I want you to know the joy that I have in following Christ. And so his ambition for our lives is joy. Joy in Jesus. Then at the end of his letter in 1 John, he says, I'm also writing so that you know you have eternal life. And we can look at that phrase, eternal life, in a lot of different ways. I don't think it's simply just, hey, after this life, you have something that's to come. That's true. But for John, I believe he's like, it's a quality of life here and now. Today is also a part of your eternal life, as well as your afterlife. And so he wants us to wrestle with all of these things and to understand how life with Jesus is just better. See, we say that as a church. It's our mission statement. And we say that because John won't shut up about that fact. Like when you read through his works, he loves that word life. He uses it a ton. He's like, in Jesus there's life, and he came to give you abundant life, and he came to unleash you to a fullness of life, and in that life there is joy, a joy so rich, so deep, so powerful, the world cannot take that away from you. See, I think that's a compelling message. I want to live in the scope of that message. But here's what John also knows. There's a counterweight in our lives to life and joy. And that counterweight is a deep problem. It's a real challenge that sucks away life and sucks away joy. In fact, if you're taking notes this morning in our app, it's an everyday problem. And it's the everyday problem of sin. Sin. That's the thing that is so corrosive in relationship to life and joy. Now, uh, I don't know how you grew up. I don't know what your religious tradition might be. But depending on some of that, that word sin may be a triggering word. It may be a word that has baggage or it was a word that was used with velocity kind of against you. Maybe it was accusatory. Maybe it was shaming. Maybe it was a word that left wounds in your life because people used it carelessly. I get that. But here's what I want to do. I want to clear up some stuff about this word sin today because I think it is a vivid word. And it's a useful word because it gives us a sense of what we're really up against, what we're really dealing with, and why we are so dependent on Jesus for the stuff of our lives and what we need. Because what is true to this word is it affects everybody. It affects the believer. It affects the make-believer. It affects the disbeliever. It affects the other believer, whatever their system is. Sin affects all of that. But to understand what this word is communicating, especially in the original language, I I, I need to give you a picture because it's a word picture that's being used. So we have the picture of a target. Yay! And we have a gun. That works out perfect. Look at that. 
It's like everything comes together, and this is the Hyperfire Elite 3000. Well, it doesn't say 3000, but I added that because it's fun. So here's the thing, right? So we have this target, and it goes all the way from 2 to this tiny little bullseye of a 10. And 10 is perfection. 10 is hitting the mark perfect every single time. Now, 9 is nice, 8 is great, 7 is okay, 6, yeah, 5, ooh, you get to the end, it gets bad, right? But here's the thing. Anything other than 10 isn't perfect. Anything other than 10 is missing the design. And so I'm going to give it a shot here and see if I can... Um, uh... That's like 25 rounds right there. Something like that. Oh, I got another two or three. Ah, it still failed. Because the Greek word that John uses for sin is a missing of the mark. That's what sin means. It's like every time shooting at the target, trying to hit the target, and every time missing the target that you're shooting for. Right? And so in this sense, we begin to understand what he's getting at. No matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, no matter how focused we are, we're always going to have times in our life, situations where we're going to miss the mark in our lives as it relates to the perfect standard that God has. And here's the thing about missing the mark that I think is really important. Uh, we sometimes miss the mark intentionally, like we, we know what God wants us to do and we don't do it. But we also can miss the mark unintentionally. We just don't even realize. I know in my life, sometimes I do things that God's like, Matt, what are you thinking? And I'm thinking like, dude, I'm bringing my best. It's awesome. And he's like, dude, you're oblivious that your, your tone is wrong. Your thinking's wrong. Your perspective is wrong, right? So there's times where I am ignorant of my missing the mark. But there's other times I'm very knowledgeable. I'm making a conscious decision to miss the mark. Sometimes we miss the mark, you ready? In the name of morality, right? That's where religion sometimes can have some really ugly sides, but it's all in the name of what we think is doing a right thing. But then there's other times where we can miss the mark in the spirit of immorality. Sometimes we miss the mark in the name of Christ because we seek to defend Christ, but we do it in Christless ways. And other times we miss the mark because we are denying or forgoing what we know Christ wants in our lives. We can miss the mark with wrong attitudes, with wrong affections, and certainly with wrong actions. And so missing the mark, it's easy to do, right? We all do it. And when we miss the mark, when we don't hit the bullseye, all those events, all those attitudes, all of those things, they're, again, they're going to be corrosive to real unleashed life, to real deep joy and flourishing. And that's what John is seeking to address, right? That's what he wants us to wrestle with. He's like, in Jesus is everyday life and joy, but when there is sin, it corrodes everyday life and joy. Whether it be the noun of sin, which is like the concept, or the verb of sin, which is the action, and John uses both copiously in his letter of 1 John, whatever it is, sin kind of gets in the way. Sin creates the problem. And I believe for John, as he writes to this, he's not like Paul. Right? Like Paul is this philosopher theologian. He's, he gets into the principles a lot of 
of the things that we deal with. I think John's really down-to-earth, practical, boots on the ground. He's dealing with how our sin and the corrosiveness of it, uh, it robs us of relationship with others, relationship with God. He's just in the practical weeds of the problem. And so he's addressing it. And we all wrestle with it. But he addresses it in a way that I think is actually kind of funny, and it's a little bit strange. All right, so let me see if I can kind of reconstruct this. Uh, If you remember previously, uh, we said that John is writing, and in part, he's got a group of opponents who have a perspective on their life. And his opponents think they don't sin, they don't have sin, they're not guilty of sin. Right? That's what they think. So for whatever reason, they, they still affirm that Jesus is divine. They kind of reduce that Jesus is human. They're playing some games with who Christ really is. But in this, they're thinking to themselves, hey, if Jesus has dealt with my sins, then I am sinless, and therefore I don't sin. I can't sin. There is no sin in my life. Thus, my poo don't stink. Right? That's what they think. And it can't stink, and it won't stink, and it doesn't stink in any conceivable way. And John's having to say, no, 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 you're missing the point. You're taking this too far. Thus, in chapter 1, verse 8, he reminds us, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves, and we're not living in the truth. And then in verse 10, he doubles down. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So if we're wanting to honor Jesus and have a faithful walk, we're grabbing our clipboard right now, and we're taking notes. All right, as a faithful follower of Jesus, I better not ever say, I have no sin, I don't sin, I can't sin. I better not say that. Because if I say that I have no sin, then I'm, I'm, I'm a fool and I'm calling God a liar. And if you call God a liar, that seems like a really bad idea. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make sure I play by these things. But then, when you roll into chapter 3, John flips the script. He says, you know that Jesus came to take away our sins and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. What are you doing to us, John? I mean, do you see what's going on there? If I say I don't sin, well, then I'm a fool and I make God a liar. And if I say, well, then uh, I, 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 I didn't sin because I'm in Christ and now I don't sin. He's like, well, then you don't live in him, you don't know him, and you don't understand him. It's like what John does between chapter 1 and chapter 3 is he basically says, damned if you do, damned if you don't. That's the way it feels. If I say I have no sin, I'm a, I'm a fool. And if I actually reach a state of fulfilling what John says and I'm not sinning because I'm in Christ, he's like, now you're crazy. Right? All of this is very complicated. So when we look at this, we're like, John, what are you up to? Right? Because if I say I'm sinning, I don't seem like I'm a Christian. If I say I don't sin, I don't seem like I'm a Christian. What do I do? It seems messy. But here's the thing. In John's blog, he uh, loves to use a particular tool, and it's called hyperbole. Right? You familiar with this? It's a rhetorical device. See, hyperbole, you're familiar with it. Uh, We say things that are kind of crazy, kind of extreme, like, I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse. A, ew. Like, nobody's like, oh man, some horse meat for Easter would be awesome, you know? And B, you're not going to eat that much meat. So you're making this extreme statement, but you're making a point with the extreme statement. Or we say, I've got a ton of bills to pay. Really? You got thousands of bills, or thousands of pounds of bills to pay? No, it's hyperbole. 
Right? Or I feel the weight of the world on my shoulders. Well, that's a lot of weight. So we talk in extremes all the time. And John, he tends to do this throughout 1 John. In fact, you'll notice that every one of the titles of this entire series is highlighting that hyperbole, where he's very extreme in his things. But all of those extremes are meant to center us into a more nuanced, centered idea that's the deeper, truer point of the hyperbole. Now, I bring this up because I think John learned it from Jesus. Because he cruised with Jesus, learned from Jesus, uh, heard the messages of Jesus, and Jesus loved to use hyperbole. I mean, think about the different things that Jesus talks about, right? He talks about the speck in a person's eye versus the log in your eye, right? Extremes, but to make a point. Or Jesus talks to the Pharisees, and he says, man, you guys, you strain out the gnat to stay so clean, but you swallow the camel in the midst of that. It's hyperbole. Nobody's like sucking down an entire camel in one swallow. Jesus seems to like camels because he uses it another time. He says it's going to be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to inherit the kingdom. What he would be saying, if we're to take that literally, is no rich person anytime ever can be saved. But he's using an extreme to then make a more simplified point. Same with the most extreme statement Jesus ever makes, which is, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Like Jesus wants us all walking around stumpy-armed and no sight, right? See, we know that's, again, extreme hyperbole meant to teach a lesson. It gets our attention. It makes us sit up when we hear the extreme of, I don't sin, or I should never sin. And we go, man, what am I supposed to learn? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to embrace? How am I supposed to change? See, that's what John is driving us to. And so between the extreme of saying you don't sin and the extreme of saying Christians will not sin is the more subtle point. And the more subtle point is that for John, sin is the everyday absence of living or practicing or fellowshipping in the light and the truth who is Jesus. All of this extreme language reminds us of, man, I've got to rely on Jesus. I've got to depend on Jesus. I cannot do this on my own. If I just claim I don't have a problem, I'm ridiculous. And if I just claim that I can do it, if I just grit my, my, my fist tight enough and I clench down tight enough, I can master sinlessness in my life. You're like, no, we can't do that. John knows we can't do that. But for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, this should mean that we blow off sin or we deny the problem of sin. No, there needs to be a certain level of ownership. In other words, what we want to do is be honest about our frailty, be honest about the fact that we missed the mark, right? That we want to be sincere in our approach to those things, and we want to be as faithful as possible to who Jesus is and what Jesus calls us to. And we want to do this not out of duty, not out of legalism, not out of religiosity necessarily. We want to do this because one of John's big ideas is we know him. He knows us. We're in fellowship with him. This is a relational dynamic, and we want to operate from that relationship. We want to operate from that space of life and joy and love. And so who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to drive all of this and so if the counterweight to life and joy is our sin, what is John's solution for the daily problem of our sin? Well, his solution is more Jesus. 
More practical, everyday Jesus. More cowbell, more Jesus. That's the heart. And he doesn't simply mean the positional Jesus because when you read Paul, Paul talks a lot about our position in Christ, which is awesome. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. Uh, We even see that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. I don't even understand how that works. But our position in Christ is firm and secure, and you have the exact same righteousness of Christ because of what Christ has done for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Awesome stuff, positionally. But I think John is trying to deal with the practical side of that relationship, which is we're still human, we still struggle, we're still flawed, and we need more Jesus in our daily spaces. We need to rely on him more and seek him more to overcome these things. And so it's in that context then, chapter 2, verse 1, John kind of speaks a little bit more centered. He says, my dear children, which I love that because it's a tone of compassion and care and empathy and understanding. He says, my dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin, right? And I love the heart because he's like, you're my precious friends. And I know what sin does practically in our lives every day, right? Sin robs us. Sin takes away flourishing. Sin keeps us from the things that are most ideal in the spaces that God wants us to inhabit. And I don't want that for you. If I want you to have joy and I want you to have a sense of eternal life, I know sin is this this disruptor to all of that. And so I'm writing because, man, I don't want you to be caught up in things that drag you down. And yet, at the same time, John knows we're all too human. He knows we're all prone to miss the mark. We can't hit the perfect 10 in attitude, action, and affection every single time. And so, in his care, and his empathy, and his thoughtfulness, he says, if, though, anyone sins, I write so that you don't. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. Now, here's what's so cool about this. John has used this idea of the advocate earlier in his gospel. He writes about the Holy Spirit. And there it gets translated differently to be, he will be our comforter. He will be our helper. He will be our guide. The fancy word is paraclete. That's the Greek word that was used. And John uses the same thing now of Jesus. And the spirit of this is that Jesus comes alongside us in our weakness. He comes alongside us us in our failure, in our mistake, in our missing the mark, and not hitting the 10. He's like, I'm going to be there with you. When you fall down, I stand alongside you. I bring you up. Why? Because he's sympathetic to our weaknesses, Hebrews says. He understands how hard the human kind of condition really is. And so he comes alongside to bring care, to bring comfort. See, I love the word picture because instead of him scolding, Matt, why did you blow it again? Why do you keep failing, Matt? Why do you let me down? That's not what he does. He's like, okay, Matt, you blew it. I'm coming alongside. I'm going to advocate for you. I'm like your defense attorney before God. Where he says to the father, I know this one, he's mine. And yes, he makes a lot of mistakes and he puts his foot in his mouth a lot and he's kind of a derp, but he's my derp. I love that derp. I gave myself for that derp so I could rescue, redeem, and use that derp. See, that's why he became one of us, right? He became human, though divine. That's John's opponent's deny part of this, but he's both 
so he could dwell with us, so he could partner with us, so he could transform us, really, so, man, we could be unleashed in him. That's what he does. Thus, in verse 2, we see the mode by which he did that, did this very thing. In verse 2, it says, he himself is the sacrifice that helasmos, or if we wanted to hear it more in an English tone, helasmoses our sins. Now, this word is a Greek word. And I, I'm sorry that sometimes in this series it's Greek heavy, but I think it's helpful to understand the nuances of a thing. And I've left this word as a Greek word for just a minute because when it comes to translation, we're not exactly sure the best word to use. So if you started to pull out a lot of different versions, some are going to say he is the atonement that sacrifices himself for our sins. And others are going to say he is the propitiation or propitiator for our sins. And then others are going to talk about his expiation. And that's what he does. And I know a lot of you are hearing those words and you're like, tilt, I don't even know what to do with that. I, I, I don't know the differences between all of those things, Right? Well, these three words are the most popular to try to understand what John is getting at because this word only happens twice in the New Testament and both times it's in John, right? So we're trying to kind of triangulate. Well, what's, what's the nuance that we should use to translate this? And in part, what we want to remember is uh, that last week we learned that John is pulling from the Day of Atonement. So that wacky book of Leviticus that we hardly know what to do with at times, uh, in chapter 16, it highlights this Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, all three of these separate words are happening. And so I'm going to explain all three of these words. In one sense, the high priest is engaged in this act of atonement, creating at one They exist between God and the people to bring unity where there's been division. And to bring unity within the camp of God's people where there has been division. So throughout the year, people have not loved their neighbor as they should. They have missed the mark on what it means to truly love their neighbor with those 247 different laws. And so on the day of atonement, the high priest brings at-one-ment. Between God, between the people, everything comes together. So it's a high priest role, this at-one-ment concept. But then there's also this need for propitiation. And that's a fancy word of saying the wrath of God needs to be appeased in some way. And so then the high priest, on behalf of the people, they take a goat. And that goat, its life is given to the people. It's slain, and the blood that is the icon of life is imparted to the people, and it gives the people life. After a year of decay, they're refreshed with this essence of life symbolized in the blood of this goat. But then there's a second goat, and this is the expiation goat. The first goat is the propitiation goat. The second goat is the expiation goat, where the high priest symbolically takes the sin of the people, puts it on this goat, and this goat doesn't die. This goat is just sent out into the wild, and it carries their sins away. So in the whole Day of Atonement, you have multiple things happening. The high priest is creating at one minute. This particular goat is giving its life as it dies, and this other goat is taking away sin as it leaves the camp, right? So all these ideas are all bundled together, and it seems that John does this brilliant thing, and he chooses a word that kind of has bandwidth so that all three ideas seem to be captured. And what he's kind of getting at is Jesus is the one that brings that one mint. Jesus is the one who actually gives us his life and kind of takes the wrath of God. And then on top of all of that, he carries our offenses away. 
he's goat, goat, high priest, and then also he can be the Lamb of God, which is the, the Passover ceremony. Different thing altogether, but John likes to loop that in too because he bundles all these ideas together. Right? So that seems to be his heart. And so it's like a redemptive hat trick here, right? It's a trifecta. It's a three for one that John captures. Jesus does all of this. And he says he is a sacrifice not only for our sins, but then John's like, man, and not only for us, but for the sins of the whole world. It's like, here's God's gift. Here's Jesus' work all caught up in one. And John loves to celebrate this. Like in John chapter one of his gospel, we see John the Baptist is there and he says, behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sins of the world. And then in John chapter 3, 16 and 17, God so loved the world that he gave his son. Why? So that he could condemn the world? He says, no, so that he could save the world. Then in chapter 4, Jesus is the Savior of the world, declared by the Samaritans. Then you get to chapter 6, and he says, I am the bread of life that gives life to the world. John 12, he says, I'm going to be lifted up on the cross, and when I do that, I will drive out the enemy of this world, and I will draw all people to myself. And he does this because of what we see in John 16. He has overcome the world. See, John loves this theme of Jesus came to rescue the world. And the whole idea is so that we celebrate the depths and the riches of the love of Christ, what he does for us, for the world around us, and for God's own glory. Yet, this is going to be known only by those who believe. The benefits, the beauty, is only understood by those who say, Jesus, I recognize who you are. You're the Savior of the world. You're the one that gives life and love and joy in all of these things. Those who don't believe don't enjoy what Jesus has done for them. But for those who believe, we have blessing and bonus and opportunity to live life fully alive. Live life in God's solution more than we reside in our problem. But this is a practical daily kind of thing. And so that leads to the final point in our notes this morning, the result of when every day Jesus' the solution is greater than sin the problem. Like where we live every day and we go, man, I know what is better for my life. Jesus, the one who is my solution today, every day. That's far better than the thing that will weigh me down and rob me of life and joy. Sin, my problem. And so John continues to push this. He says, and, verse 3, we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. Right? There's life and peace and joy in those things. He says, if someone claims I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. Now again, I think John is using stout language to some degree hyperbole, right? But the point is, a failure to live this out, that which has been implanted in, um, it, it ultimately is destructive for us. It is, right? We're not living in the truth that's been given to us and made real through us. And I think when this happens, there's a twofold problem, right? And I'm talking about us as followers of Jesus, us as Christians. When we tend to kind of uh, say we know God, but we're not really obeying God, it does two fundamental things. One is it makes God a liar, and the other makes us a liar. And here's what I mean by this. Um, it makes God a liar because what God says to the world is, hey, I rescue people out to be a different people. 
I divide them out so that they can love one another. They can be a community of flourishing and blessing. They can be this place that is unlike anything in the world. It's driven by the fruit of the Spirit. It acts out on this definition of love. Like, it, it, it embodies the ethics of the kingdom. But when we don't do that, then the world looks and goes, well, God must be overselling the point. Does he really make people different? Are they really transformed? Are they really an, un, un, like a, an uncommon holy community? Are they just like everybody else? Like that's, that's what the world will do if we don't live out what God calls us to. So in that sense, we, we don't want to make it look like God's overplaying the product. No, if he really makes us new, we should look new. And so John's just kind of reminding, like, this is why we want to strive to look new. And that's why we need Jesus more every day. But the other part of it is it kind of makes us a liar because if we say, I believe in God and I believe the Bible's true and I think God gave these words for us to obey him and then we actively rebel against that, we just choose not to for any given reason on any given day over any given topic, what we're kind of in essence saying is, I believe in God, but I don't really believe in God. I think he's watching me, but come on, he's not really watching me. I can get away with this one, right? And, and, and so John, again, is just trying to lovingly coach us to take our faith humbly serious. And yet, he knows we're going to blow it too. We're going to fail. And so he's counterbalancing this with, remember, you have an advocate. And he cares for you, and he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of that is true. So he says, don't sin, but if you do sin, you've got a solution, Right? And, and don't make claims that you don't want to really try to address, but try to address them more and more every day so you get stronger and healthier and better in the, the development of life. And yes, he forgives you, but he doesn't forgive you so you get off scot-free. He gives you so that you can be refreshed and move forward sin-free. And so John just has this vision that's altogether unique. Thus he says in verse 5, those who obey God's word Show how they completely love him, how completely and truly that they do. That's how we know we are living in him. See, I dig this because John has this sly little trick that he uses there, right? He talks about living in the truth in the first verse, and then he talks about living in him in the second. They're synonymous. To really live in the truth is to live in Jesus, and to live in Jesus is to live in the truth, and that's going to be what's important to John, right? And then it's about knowing and knowing isn't about what we claim, what we attest to, what we profess. Knowing is about knowing the one who we emulate and we love. See, at the core, I believe John is digging at our motives. Our motives. And I've wrestled with this a lot in my own life, right? Because I don't think he's just interested in that we have acts of obedience. I think he wants hearts that obey. Right? God wants our full person, not just our activities, not just our moralities. He wants our full person in everything that we do. And so that's what he's striving to see unleashed. Because in life, I find there are three motivators for obedience. One motivator is need to. And the need to is uh, if you live in a tyrannical government, you need to obey or you die. But I don't think that's the greatest motive. Others are going to have the have-to motive. That's like an employer to an employee, right? And as an employee, you just, you have to obey what your boss says. See, what John seeks of us, what I think Jesus desires of us, is want to. The want to obey because it's rooted in friendship, it's rooted in love, it's rooted in a fellowship with him. And so that's what John is co coaxing out in his 
his writings here, right? He uses all of this hyperbole, light versus dark, truthers versus liars, the problem of claiming no sin, and the promise that Christians don't sin. He uses all of that dramatic prose to drive home again the simple solution that, man, everything in every way, every day, what we need is Jesus. We need Jesus. He is the one that came to give life for us, to give life to us, who stands for us and stands with us. He is the one that modeled life to us and motivates life in us. He is the one who makes us right with God, and he is the one that gives direction as we live unto God. Thus, John wraps up his argument in verse 6, and he says, here's the bottom line I'm getting at. This is those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Right? A lot of winding to get to a simple idea. And what I dig about this is that John both softens his tone and focuses his thoughts. Right? He does both. How does he soften his tone? He says, this is what we should do. It's what we should do. Doesn't mean we always do it. It doesn't mean we do it well. But it's what we should strive to do. So he softens the tone. It's not liars and fools. It's here's what we should do, people. But he also focuses what it is we should do. And it's not that we need to look more religious, more rule-based, more ethical. We need to simply model our life after Jesus. We need to look more like him. The one who came as gentle and lowly and establishes rest for weary souls. We need to look like him. We're always benchmarking against Jesus. What do we see in him and what did he do? I was thinking about this this week and our phrase, life is better with Jesus, right? And I was just kind of meditating on, well, what does that look like then in my outplay? And this is what I wrote down. If life is better with Jesus, then the lives of those around us should be made better due to Jesus in us. That's how simple it is. If we're not making the lives of the people around us better because Jesus is in us, then we're not doing the Jesus thing. We might be doing the Christian thing, the religious thing, the rule-based thing, the law thing, the whatever thing, but really when it comes down to it, the reason we are set apart and divided is so that we can kind of gather, we can heal, we can be strong together, we can really kind of stir one another to love and good deeds so that we can go out in our community and we can be like Jesus so they're blessed because we embody his heart for the world. This morning is Communion Sunday. And I love the fact that John closes by saying we should be like him and then we instantly go into the remembrance of what he's done for us. Right? It's this perfect parallel. Like Jesus was sacrificial for us. Jesus is understanding toward us. Jesus is gentle and lowly with us. And so if I'm going to be like Jesus, I want to take my cues from what I see in him. I, I want to emulate what he does for me. And the pinnacle of that is this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. I'm giving my very life essence to you. Why? So you can go live that out to others who need to experience that as well. So communion for us this morning is a centering effect, a tribute, a reminder, a remembrance, but also kind of like a, a call to arms and a, a quest to live this thing out in ways that are beautiful and bold and gracious and compelling. And, and so right now, I want to give you a moment to just kind of reflect. We're going to be passing out the elements in a minute, and our worship team is going to go ahead and come up here. And um, 
and get ready for today. But, but in this, I, I, I don't want today even to be like this discouragement. I'm hoping it's an encouragement. I hope it's sober, because I think John says things that make it sobering, but at the same time, inspiring. Like, wow, this is what Jesus has made it possible for me to do, and how I can live like him, and that that's what most matters. And the more I have him in my daily spaces, the more I will, I will not fall victim to the things that rob me of joy in life. And from that, man, I gotta go use this in the world. I gotta go bless this world. I gotta go care for this world because I'm an ambassador of this Jesus that I know who loves me and from that wants me to love others in his name. As you think about taking the elements this morning, I just want you to center in again on what it means, what it accomplishes, and what it calls us to do.